1: Anderson Hauser is a global leader in measurement instrumentation services and solutions for industrial process engineering. They are the people for process automation. You know, there's an old proverb that says, He who tooteth not his own horn may never hear his own horn tooted. And we don't actually have that problem on this particular podcast, but I am. I'm going to take the opportunity to toot my own horn or toot our own horn horn just a little bit, because if you go back and, and check over the past oh, 15 months since Anderson Hauser started sponsoring this podcast, we have top-notch guests on this show. We have a lot of CEOs and a lot of COOs, and that's actually the case today. And so I'm excited to introduce our guest here in just a minute. But if you appreciate this podcast, and a lot of people do to our horn for us, Please leave us a review on the podcast platform that you listen to, and like us on LinkedIn. But also, please think and support our sponsor, Anderson Hauser, by going to our OGGN Anderson Hauser website, which you can find a link to in the show notes, and register for our monthly giveaway there. Also, follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter, and that contact info you can also find in the show notes as well. Well, as I said, again, we have another top-notch guest on the show today and I'm going to take just a minute as a matter of fact to toot his horn because today we have on the show Chris I mean well, actually I should say Dr. Chris Herrich. Chris is the COO and founder of XRI. Chris, thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Well, so Chris, actually I said I was going to toot your own horn here. Not only do you have you have a PhD from USC in water resource management, is that correct? Yes, sir. Russell, I do. And you previously served as a U.S. Geological Survey Project Chief for multiple nationally strategic integrated water resource management studies using advanced technology. So, I think that gives us an idea of what we're going to be talking about today, so let's turn it over to you, and let's talk about XRI, and let's talk about your expertise in this very important subject. You bet. I'd
0: love to, Russell. Thank
1: you. You're on, Chris. Okay, so I think, you know, I appreciate you having here today, Russell. I think
0: just so many so many good things have changed, and, and the industry, how we look at water, what we do with water, coming out of the pre covid world and now post covid world how water has changed dramatically for the industry it is it's just grown it's sped up by leaps and bounds and now we're really searching for efficiencies we're really focusing on on esg metrics and really looking how health and safety all play a role in water completions you know sp- specifically in the permian basin because that's where xri has focused that's where I work, but it's growing outside the Permian Basin. So looking at other shale plays, not only in the lower 48, but also internationally as well, as we're looking at using more produced water and recycling of produced water in a healthy way, in a safe way, and in an efficient way where it saves people money. So so we're just super excited with the direction the industry is going and, and kind of where we're going as XRI.
1: Okay. So when you say this thing is growing... You're talking about we're using more and more water, or you're talking about the technology to manage the water that we're currently using. Is that what's growing?
0: Yeah, I would say both. So kind of pre-COVID, we were just starting to dabble with using recycled produced water for completion fluids. There were a couple operators, specifically in the Permian Basin and other places, that were relying on produced water as part of their frac chemistry makeup. But it wasn't ubiquitous. It wasn't, people weren't really leaning into it and pushing hard at saying, hey, no, we want to go 100% produced water frack.
1: Okay, now let me interrupt you right there because I guess there must be some things I don't understand about this because, I mean, why wouldn't you do that? Is it the economics of the thing or what?
0: No, so a lot of the times it's more logistics, really. It's it's kind of a liquid logistics problem. When you go and do a frac. You know, say you're a super major and you do a 12-well pad frack. You bring in, say, 7, 8 million barrels of water to that frack location, go down, stimulate the well. And as they start to bring that well on production and, and the pop happens, that produced water is there in that location. They might be 12 miles away on their other 12-well pad getting ready to frack that. And so you have a logistics problem. You've got to clean up the produced water, but then you've got to transport it to the next play or the next field that they're in for development. So traditionally, we've just always, in, in the Permian is we fracked wells, brought on production, and then that produced water went to an SWD for disposal. XRI has kind of come in and said, no, we're going to disrupt that. We're going to take that produced water, bring it on production. We're going to recycle, reuse it, and give it to another customer where it's close. So if another customer is fracking in the area, we, we would target that person and try to bring on the produced water, recycled produced water, bring it to their next door neighbor and let them complete with the well. Or we would do the long haul transfer of moving it 12 miles away or sometimes 50 miles away to that same operator and complete those wells that he has scheduled So that's kind of the way we're focused on it. We built about 400 miles of pipeline to make that a reality and generally large diameter
1: pipeline. So, you know, 16, 20, 24 inch diameter pipeline. Okay, so you're changing the whole dynamics here because you're saying that in in most instances in this scenario you just described, there's probably an SWD disposal site That's closer and easier and probably more economical to just go and pump that down into the ground rather than cost of recycling it and then getting it to, you know, the next, the next well pad is, is, is that. And so what you guys have done is you're actually disrupting the logistics of that, or or you're solving the logistics problem and making it more economical and, and more efficient, Right. Yeah, we're kind of
0: solving the logistics. We have we view recycling different. We kind of view recycling similar to the way pressure pumping is. So our recycling capabilities and capacities, we decided to grow them. So each recycling
1: unit can do 100 kBD. Now, hang on just a minute. You can't use, can't terms, use acronyms. You can't use terms like you got to explain. Yeah, you can use them. You just got to explain them.
0: <laughs> so 100,000 barrels a day per unit. Recycling throughput capacity, we made those mobile or semi-mobile. So when we look out into the industry, we see all the good pressure pumping companies, all the sand companies, and all the the chemistry companies, everything's highly mobile on the frack pad. So, you know, you have 48 hours to move a frack fleet that might be 50, 75,000 horsepower. We decided early on that our recycling capability must be the same. We need to have our recycling equipment highly mobile. So it's more of a frack on the fly scenario. You can go, you can set up, you can be treating produced water either on location or right off the frack pad or moving it. And so your equipment follows the need, right? It's not a stationary pond. It's not a stationary recycling area where all of a sudden the demand for that recycled produce dries up. You have a facility that is being mothballed or it's just not producing, recycled produced for, you know, 90% uptime, right? So you're always going to be kind of in a losing scenario if your equipment isn't running at least 75 to 80% utilization. So the way we solved it was we said, hey, this stuff needs to be mobile. As a super major or a mid-major moves around the area, whether it's a county or multiple counties, our equipment to recycle produced water needs to move to those areas where the demand is high. Or we set it up where we have pipelines to move it there. We've invested, you know, tremendous time and money and effort into building large diameter pipeline, 400 miles of which is in the buried in the Permian Basin. And so we'll transport that recycled produced water long distances and then have it available for multiple operators on the way. So. We're trying to solve some of the water demand issues that the industry faces by those two scenarios, having highly mobile recycling units and then also these kind of long-haul pipelines that we have recycled, produced, available to multiple operators along the way. Hey, it's Mark LeCour, editor in chief here at OGGN. Sorry for the interruption, folks, but I just want to share a few quick things for November. First, our industrial mixers here in Houston, November 17th. It's usually the last Thursday of each month, but because of the holidays, we're having to move stuff around. We're also launching a new live stream, OGGN Unscripted, on November 16th. We'll be at the Rockwell Automation Fair, November 10th through 11th. You can come free. We'll have a live podcast there. We'll be hosting some panels. And then we'll also be at the 23rd World Petroleum Congress, 5th through 9th, once again with live podcast and hosting a couple of panels. For this information and everything else, just follow us on social. Check us out on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook. And if you go to LinkedIn, go ahead and join the OGGN Street Team. I'll see you again next month.
1: Well, I'm excited to hear about that. And you've actually, I think you've helped clear up a few things in my mind. First of all, from, you know, an environmental standpoint, obviously clean water is, and having enough water is something that is a concern. And it not only is it a concern, but, you know, we're strong advocates for the oil and gas industry, obviously on all our OGGN podcasts. And of course, you know, one of the knocks, you know, fracking is bad for all kinds of reasons but you know one of the biggest reasons is is it just you're taking up too much water and so being able to reuse this water and i guess i guess what has always been the problem in the past is you talk about this 100,000 barrel per day capability a lot of the technology in the past it just couldn't keep up with the amount of water that was was actually being used and then Having a fixed site facility, that was another limitation to the whole process. And it sounds like maybe you guys have solved that, especially with the installation of these pipelines. Is that right?
0: Yes, sir. So, you know, we're we're on par right now. So we recycle our throughput capacity through all of our units out in the Permian. We have about 1.8 million barrels of recycling capacity. And that's, you know, if I turned on every single unit full bore today, I could get 1.8 million barrels a day through it. Right now when we look at at using recycled produced the main reason and and I'm a water resource engineer by background and training we're trying to save the groundwater. So instead of using groundwater or surface water for a frac, we're trying to use recycled produced. You know, so right now we're on we're on schedule to save 400 million barrels this year that would have been pulled out of the ground and sent to a frack. And and the problem is is when you pull it out of that aquifer or you pull it out of that, that surface water source, I don't care if it's, you know, midland wastewater is when you inject that into the ground on a frack for completions, that water is then taken out of the hydrologic cycle, right? It'll never be returned because what many operators will do is that like you've seen of old, When that produced water comes back after completion, they go and reinject it into an SWD, never to be seen again. Exactly. We believe that's a waste, right? We believe that we should be reusing that. We also believe that we believe wholeheartedly, let's start using it today. (laughs) Like, why wait? There's no reason not to use 100% produced water today. It saves the oil companies money
1: because they. Let's stop right there because I was going to say, okay, so the way i told you what i've always been confused about is is this seems like a i mean it seems like a no brainer you use this this water that you got you save the you save the groundwater but as you explained not having the mobile facilities and not having the technology to keep up with it but then the elephant in the room let's be honest always is economics and i think that was the other reason why this, you know, isn't, as we say, a no-brainer. But you're saying now the technology has grown to the point where it, it actually, you actually use the term save oil companies money?
0: Yeah. So we're, we're actually competitive with local sources and we're competitive with landowner sources. Also, when you look at holistically the frack chemistry that we save. So when you're using recycled produced water, you no longer need to use an anti- swelling clay agent like KCL on the frac chemistry. So right away you're going to save an oil company a quarter million to a half a million dollars per frac on chemistry.
1: Yeah and KCL is potassium chloride for those who don't know.
0: Yeah. And so when you start to add that up, you know, when we're starting to move, you know, kind of pre-COVID again, I like to look at it as everything in kind of pre-COVID, post-COVID world, a lot of people were still running gel fracks or a hybrid gel pre-COVID. When we kind of woke up post-COVID, everybody started moving towards
1: friction reducers. What did COVID have to do with that?
0: We found out that we could save money or be very, very competitive with using their own produced water. And so when you were starting to use your own produced water, you cut local sources out completely. So if you went to the Delaware Basin, for instance, out in New Mexico, water sourcing costs for groundwater could have been over a dollar a barrel. If you started using your own produced water and recycling it, you could see 30 cents a barrel, 40 cents a barrel. So you can almost cut half of your water costs out if you used your own produced water. Now there's there's logistics stuff there, right? You have to have a lot of produced water in your system to be able to handle, you know, a frac of today. But what it did do is it taught people that, hey, it's okay to use recycled produced. Look at the potassium chloride savings that we're seeing from the KCL reductions. Look at what we're doing with FR and we're getting away from a crosslink. And then also just kind of the raw water costs. If we're treating our own Wastewater, if we're treating our own water that we're going to inject at, say, 25 cents a barrel, and we're postponing that injection of that water, we're recycling it and reusing it, we could be out the door net positive, maybe, or at least break even on source water costs because you don't have to inject. So you're saving 25 cents a barrel on injection chemistry, injection electricity, you know, if your company acts. And then if you so you're positive 25 cents. If it costs you 25 cents to treat it, recycle it, and put it into a pit, you're net neutral on that water cost. Then all you got to do is take it to the frack, right? You already have that cost. So that might be, you know, three, four cents a mile taking it to the frac. So then it just becomes a logistics problem. You're going to have that anyway. But the thing is, is the source water cost in New Mexico was was over a dollar a barrel just for raw groundwater. Sourcing, And so if, when you were taking, and that was kind of the pre-COVID mentality, post-COVID people have said, no, let, let's start recycling. We want to get in heavy into recycling. We're also incentivized by it today with limitations on injection and some of the seismic activity that's going on in the Permian Basin. We're seeing curtailment from the Railroad Commission in a couple of counties. We're seeing, you know, 3.7 earthquake Epicenter six miles north of Midland. And so we're starting to say, wait a minute. So, if we could reuse all of that stuff and not inject it at the pace that we're injecting, we can still complete our fracks. We can save money on our fracks. And then there's also the intangible what is the value of being able to tell shareholders that your ESG metrics recycle, reusing, saving fresh aquifer water for the cities and the people? that rely on that water. And then lastly, you're, you're taking trucks off roads. You're reducing carbon emissions from trucks off roads or, you know, moving around freshwater because the produced water is there. So you're shortening up some of your logistics if you have local fracks in the area and you're
1: using your local produced water to make those fracks happen. It just seems to me like you've been able when you talk about how this thing has grown and the technology's grown, what's grown is is you've been able to overcome all of the reasons why you wouldn't recycle it from the logistics to the economics and so you guys have done a tremendous job so x r i you consider yourselves to be a leader in this technology. How long have you guys been around? Sure, so we started in two thousand and
0: thirteen. Believe it or not, I was one of the co-founders. I came out of the United States Geological Survey, and I was specifically looking at using alternative water supplies in the great state of Oklahoma for oil and gas and using brackish water. So these were aquifers that were deeper that nobody was tapping into. They were too salty to be used for farming and agriculture. So they were kind of these Permian aquifers that existed in both Oklahoma and Texas that nobody was really tapping into as a resource for supply waters for the oil and gas industry. And that's kind of how I started. I was doing that with tribal nations of Oklahoma. I was also doing water plans and and water modeling. And then I moved to Texas because of the drought and the water shortage that they saw in the Permian kind of led me out of the federal government to start a water company in West Texas, and my partner and I kind of focused on using technology and sensors and to grow our business. And then at that time, there was a tremendous amount of trucking on the road. There was no infrastructure. People weren't building pipes and building pipe networks. And so we started investing heavy into pipe networks throughout the Permian Basin. We brought on a private equity group in 2016, being Morgan Stanley, and it just grew from there. In in 2018, we made our first acquisition of, of a treatment company. And then here just last year, or excuse me, middle part of this year coming out of COVID, we made our first acquisition of a disposal company and using bringing on disposal as a last resort. So putting it into our pipe network, if there was ever a case where we had too much produced water in the system, we could activate the disposal and put it put it down hole somewhere, as well as there will come a time that as the oil field moves, right, or with cube development, we'll exhaust the resource and we'll be taking away produced water for its ultimate disposal
1: long-term. That brings me to my, I guess, my final question here. Okay, so you're treating or recycling or whatever you want to call it the produced water to the point that it can be used in a frac efficiently and, and all that sort of thing. We're still not to the point though, where we can take all this produced water and, and start drinking it or farming with it, right? No,
0: where we're at right now is we're doing, we are truly recycling and reusing the water. So with produced water, there's a couple things that we've seen now kind of post-COVID There's just been some standards, some key performance indicators that the industry has just started to say, yes, this is where we want to be with a produced water standard per se. And you, you want your turbidity. So this is any of the floaties that's in the water. You want that below 10. You generally want your iron below two. Okay, so iron, aqueous iron, is ferrous iron that's solubilized in the water that will compete with the FR that you're using. Okay. And the reason why wait, is because the wait, wait. iron. You, you yep. got
1: another acronym. What's FR?
0: FR is just the friction reducer that's okay, changing right. the viscosity of okay. your water. So, you you know, 10 years ago, we used cross link gels to carry the prop into the frack. And so we made basically a spider web in the water. Today, we don't do that as much. We're actually changing the viscosity of the water to carry the prop through the liquid into the frac aperture. So you've okay. gone from water that has no shear to increasing the shear to like jello pudding.
1: Right, exactly. That's what I was going to say. You're, you're increasing actually the efficiency of the, of the carrier itself, the water.
0: Right, and to do that, we're using these huge molecular weight anionic polymers called FR, friction reducer. And they're just huge molecular weight. They're negatively charged just by their design. And they work really, really well. They work well with with high salinity waters. And so if you have any cations in your water, any positive charged metals, for instance, your iron, your manganese, your calcium, any of your low valence positively charged cations It just won't make the FR as efficient as you want it to be. And so it's not carrying sand as much because it's grabbed onto one of these low molecular weight irons. And so in the recycling process, you just want to clear the water up so it's nice and clear. It looks drinkable. And you want to remove out all of these cations that are competing with your FR just to give the FR the best chance to carry that sand. To clean that up and to do surface water discharge or to use it for agriculture, There are places in the lower 48 where where that's a lot closer to being a reality than we are in the Permian Basin. The company I bought, they had the first surface water discharge for produced water in the Barnett Shale in the late 80s. Now, we took it to a full radical distillation, (laughs) so if you could imagine, imagine a true distillation still going on, we took produced water and evaporated it, collected the steam, and then let zero TDS water that could have been drinkable into the local creek for discharge. It was exorbitantly expensive.
1: That's just what I was going to say. I, you, you can do that, but it's just not economical.
0: It's just not economical. And you're talking like $9, $10 a barrel expensive, even in today's dollars. There's some places in the Powder River, for instance, the Powder River Basin where they're not that far off. They're say 15000 TDS. So in those cases, you could probably use membrane technology, some sort of filtration technology to lower the TDS to surface water discharge standards or to use it with agriculture. You know, if you could get it down to, say, 2,000 TDS. We're getting closer. We're getting closer, right? We're getting a lot closer. And so what we do is we're really using technology that filters. We use flotation, dissolved air flotation. And that removes all the hydrocarbons. It removes all the chemistry we don't want. So we have clean brine water, basically. The next step is you got to remove the salts. And to remove the salts, there's just a couple tried and true methods, whether it's a membrane, a forward or reverse osmosis membrane, or a full-blown distillation that can do it. And then you know we'll probably just do part of it and we'll give it back to the agriculture industry that's sitting on top of the Ogallala up by Amarillo and Lubbock. And that would be a good reuse of that source. We're just not there yet. We, we need to figure out how to incentivize people to do that or operators to do that, you know, whether it's through through some tax subsidies or something. We have a lot of solar subsidies. We have a lot of wind power subsidies. If we can figure out how to make some sort of water subsidy to reuse our water or at least a portion of our water, you would see more movement in that technology. I think today, though, if we can just focus on, as an industry, figuring out how to really reuse all of our produced water, we wouldn't have any injection problems in the future because this is a depleting system. So every time we inject water downhole, we get less coming out than we injected. So it is a losing system, ultimately. And we wouldn't have a problem. We wouldn't have an injection problem if we would focus all on using recycled produced water for completion fluids in the Permian Basin. But we got to do that safely. We got to do that effectively, you know, and we got to do it efficiently.
1: And I think we're there. Yeah, it sounds like that's exactly the case. Chris, I really appreciate you coming on and, and telling us about this. We're going to put XRI's website in the show notes so anybody can go there and find out more. We'll put your LinkedIn contact URL also in the show notes if anybody wants to contact you and who knows, maybe next year or two years from now or wherever, maybe we'll have you back on and find out how some of this other stuff we're talking about has grown, but I really appreciate you coming on the show today. That would be great. Thanks Russell.
0: I appreciate, you know, anytime you guys want to talk about water or ESG or we could talk about other things, health and safety next.
1: We're about health and safety and, and everybody coming home. Anything you can do to make frag jobs more efficient and anything you can do to take trucks off the road, that definitely contributes towards safety. So we'll keep up with you and you guys keep up the good work. Thanks everybody for listening. Tune in again next week for another episode of Anderson House's Oil and Gas HSE podcast, a production of the Oil and Gas Global Network. And we'll see you next time.